Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2, Acts 2. Next week, Janet and I are going to go on a overnight anniversary trip. Uh, we plan to go out and eat, do a little shopping, as little as possible, maybe uh, hit a movie. And if you were to find us in the restaurant that we plan to go to, sitting at the candle-lit table, and to look over at us as we look at each other's eyes and share about what God has done in 36 years of us being together, you'd probably say to yourself, wow, they must have a great marriage. That must be the happiest couple. Taking a one-time snapshot like that and extrapolating that that's what the entire marriage is like doesn't necessarily give you an accurate picture of the relationship. Now, I think we have a good marriage. I uh, love the time that I spend with Janet. We try to have as many romantic moments as possible. We certainly need more. But as any couple can attest, such a snapshot isn't reality all the time. There are trials, right? There are difficulties, There are issues that one has to work through. Certainly these difficult times add some strength, they add some uh, perspective, but it's certainly a part of the mix. And our marriage is not defined just by that one moment, that one romantic night out of town. Our lives consist of a lot of things, just like your lives do. Uh, Doctor's appointments, grandkids, uh, family, cleaning the house, paying bills, responsibilities, jobs that are approached through a relationship lens with God and, and with your spouse. And the truth is, is if you were to take a snapshot during one of our worst days, you might say, man, those guys really need some help, right? But again, you can't extrapolate an entire life from just one moment like that, all right? You have to take a long view. Acts 2, 42 through 47, is a snapshot of the earliest moments of the church. They were exciting. They were dramatic. They were Great in the real sense of the word when you see thousands coming to Christ. And if you were to point to this passage, you might be tempted to say, that is what the early church was like. It would be true in a snapshot sense, but not necessarily in a long view sense because you read through the rest of the book of Acts and what you see are conflicts. What you see are uh, points of division. What you see is even persecution taking place in the church. It wasn't always a rosy picture. It doesn't make this passage any less meaningful. I think it's instructive. I think it has rich insight for us as a church. But to use these few verses as an exclusive and complete description of the early church, that would be a distortion, and that would be a false impression. Now, before we even open up our passage, there's, I think, a couple things that we can learn from this if we just kind of 
uh, step back and take a look at our passage. Number one is this. We cannot take one episode or one disappointment and paint an entire picture of a marriage or of a church. Okay? Having perspective certainly produces staying power, and Lord knows we need that today, right? Harmon Rene Berry's book, The Unauthorized Guide to Choosing a Church, was, I quote, inspired by her odyssey from the deeply conservative church of her childhood into the world of seekers and cynics and back again. She eventually found that the very reason that caused her to withdraw from church was one of the reasons that she came back to church. And that was the disappointment from other church members who were not living out their Christianity with consistency. I quote from Renee Berry. She said this, I had overlooked one essential factor, that I am as finite and flawed as everyone else. When a friend committed suicide, I realized I could become too cynical, too lost, and too alone. I needed a church, a community of believers. I needed to live in my faith and visit my doubts. Something happens there that simply doesn't when you are alone in prayer or on the internet. As much as I hate to admit it, my faith is enhanced and enlarged when in relationship to other less than perfect human beings or less than perfect microphones. (laughs) The second lesson as we look at this passage is that it does provide for us some definitive marks for what is essential in any church, no matter the size, no matter the denomination. Ask the common churchgoer what it is that's essential, what it is that's important in a church. And I doubt that you're going to get the exact list that you find in Acts 2, 42 through 47. It doesn't make people evil to be confused about church. Rather, I think it does lead to misaligned priorities to a loss of discernment, and in some cases, less spiritual power. We can kind of be like that movie Shallow Howl. Have you seen it about how guys choose a mate and they choose it just based on the outside and not looking at the character of a person? I mean, you can get in trouble when you make choices like that when it comes to a mate, right? A church has to prioritize and exhibit certain characteristics to be a healthy and vibrant church. Uh, You've heard me speak about this often. It's certainly not the size of a building, the number of people. It's not even, and I hate to break your bubble, as important as this is in our culture, it's not even the children's ministry, the youth ministry, the skill of the worship leader. I mean, if you were to ask people today, those things would be at the top of most people's list. Now, we are are so grateful and we are enjoying God's riches in having these things. 
But no particular program, like I've just mentioned, encapsulates the things that Acts 2 talks about. These are essential characteristics. You might even say the vision for a church. So on a practical level, the spiritual vitality comes in all shapes or sizes. You could have a spiritually vital church with Holy Spirit power, and they could have 50 people. And you could have one that's 5,000 people. Size does not matter when it comes to this kind of a thing. So let's dive into Church 101 as we read Acts 2, 42 through 47. Let's all stand. As they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their home, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, may we not approach this with an arrogance to say we've arrived, we've got all these things down. It's certainly not the case. May we not approach this with a critical heart looking at other churches saying, well, they don't do this better than us or they don't have this. Lord, keep us from such a prideful attitude. Help us just to focus on our own hearts, this church, and may you make it vibrant and healthy, more so in each of the areas that we've talked about. And may we as individuals decide that that we will do our part to make it so. May we pray for one another. May we share our lives with one another. May we worship well. May we do the things that this passage talks about. We love you. We look for your Holy Spirit to transform us. Lord, we're not here to be wowed. We're not here to be entertained. We are here to have your Holy Spirit move in our hearts as we walk in submission to you and your word. Do that in each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We notice in verse 42 that before Luke introduces the features of the church, he says, They devoted themselves to these things. They devoted themselves. The word means that they adhered to these things. They actively pursued. They showed initiative. They participated in these things. Well, what things is Luke talking about that makes a church vibrant and healthy. Verse 42 kind of introduces the topics and then the rest of the passage expands on how these things were shown in the early church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We'll only get through the first two Today, and I know that will come as no surprise to most of you, all right? 
They learned and submitted to truth. They learned and submitted to truth. Now, certainly when Luke writes of this, he has in mind the Old Testament, right? Uh, Certainly he has to have in mind the, the words that Jesus gave the apostles. And these are things that are also encapsulated in what we have in our Old Testament and New Testament. And what Luke is saying is that he wants the church to be a learning community that sat under the teaching of Scripture and never disowned it, never deserted it, never discredited it. Now, I know it's the popular thing today to take some kind of postmodern philosophy, insert it on top of Scripture, and say, you know what? You just can't make truth statements about religion. You can't be certain of these things. It's just a book. And that would be a mistake. In fact, for the people there in Acts 2, they could have this verified by signs and wonders. It says, through the apostles. It says, the apostles' teaching, and then it talks about signs and wonders being done through the apostles later on in the passage. And what we can surmise from that is that these signs and wonders were being done to authenticate the teaching. So that if people were saying, uh, who are you to sit here and tell us these things about God? And they'd say, well, uh, remember just five minutes ago we rose that guy from the dead? Uh, see, God is letting you know we're actually from God. Or remember that guy that was blind and we just healed? Uh, that authenticates that what we're saying is true. Now, we have the benefit of the Old and New Testament in completion, and we can see this, and we can verify it through bibliographical evidence, through history, through archaeology that confirms the, the, the veracity of the Scripture. The newly born church had an objective basis to confirm what they were experiencing as the church was born. So can a church have lots of people and not be devoted to the apostles' teaching? Sure. And by the way, I'm not talking about a certain style of preaching. Uh, I'm I'm not talking about, you know, the decibel level of how one teaches, whether or not they use PowerPoint. Um, All of these specifics aren't the issue. The issue is really whether a, a congregation honors the book, teaches from the book, cares about the clarity that it gives, it's it's alliance with the book, that their lives are guided by the book. Not just in speech. That's really, I think, the heart of what this is saying. Can a church possess vitality, Holy Spirit power, if they consistently contradict or discredit the Scripture? And I would say there is no friggin' way. No way. You have, to, you have to honor the book that God gave in order for the Holy Spirit 
to be infused in that ministry. But actually, I don't think that's the greatest problem. I don't think the out-and-out opposition to God's word, it's an issue, I'll get it. But I think the greatest issue for us sitting here and for in the mainline churches, it's disinterest. Disinterest in the Bible. The New York Times Sunday Book Review regularly interviews a writer about what books he or she is reading. And in June 2015, they asked screenwriter and director Judd Apatow questions like, what books are currently on your nightstand? Who is your favorite novelist of all time? What books might we be surprised to find on your shelves? And when they ask him about disappointed or overrated books, just not that good, you know, very good books, or what book did you feel like you were supposed to like but didn't? Do you remember the last book you put down without finishing? Apatow replied, the Bible. It's just not working for me. I wish it was. I mean, it'd be great if it did work for me and I had the peace that one gets from knowing the universe is just and kind and guided by eternal intelligence. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. Well, we can criticize him, but I think he just described a lot of people who go to church. Just not interested. I don't mind coming and hearing somebody that might be interesting and, you know, having some good music. But, you know, when, when it comes to really aligning my life under the Bible, when it comes to really coming in conflict with some of my peer group about these things, I think I'll just go to the peer group. Uh, just, I'm just not that interested, particularly if it comes in conflict with the culture, right? Uh, let's say that after the service, I were to walk through the parking lot and I find a letter there in the parking lot on the ground. And it was a letter written by one of you to your spouse. And it was written to settle a dispute. Now, my interest would only reach a certain level of curiosity. I'm not sure I would read through the whole thing. I'm supposed to say that as a pastor, right? I wouldn't read through your letter. I wouldn't do that. The point is, is that I'm not emotionally engaged because it was written for, by you, to someone else. But if my wife wrote such a letter, I would see myself as personally involved, directly responsible, emotionally engaged, because I would see myself in her words and I would care about what she thought. And if there was anything I didn't understand about her letter to me, I would be quick to go and try to find out and understand it. And Lord knows I don't understand all of the communication and we need to, we need to work with each other, right? To help to understand. If we are to rightly engage the Bible, I think it necessitates that we see ourselves as the recipients of God's correspondence to us. God inspired these Old and New Testament writers to reveal himself to us, to show us our need of dependence upon him. If I don't see my need of God, if I think of myself as not having a problem, I mean, let's face it, you know, 
You might say to yourself, I'm pretty upwardly mobile. I've got a wife and kids. I've got a good job. I've got a, what do I need God for? I mean, really, seriously. There's just not a need. I don't see a need to fit under some divine authority that the Bible gives. I pretty much have my own morality that I can work within, and I'm frankly quite comfortable with that. You can easily see how the Bible would be ignored, how it would be avoided. But once my life, my experiences are filtered through the pages of Scripture, and I see God writing to me, for me, I hang on to it for dear life. Because Lord knows, in those honest moments, boy, do I need help. My heart is crooked. My heart needs an infusion of truth. That's just honest. That's real. That's all of us. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God, the psalmist said. Verse 46 speaks of the believers daily entering the temple. So these Jewish Christians, Jews who came to Christ, and by the way, remember, there were thousands who had come upon Jerusalem for this festival season. They continued with their temple connection, and we know that when they were in the temple, they heard teaching and they prayed corporately. And a church that is spiritually powerful doesn't just show up to hear teaching, though. They are devoted to it. So that means, like I mentioned before, if the culture runs against the Scripture, if it it collides with what the Scripture has to say, I'm presented with a choice. I can either go with the the flow of my peer group, the flow of the culture. Now, that doesn't mean that you throw it in people's face. It doesn't mean that you're a jerk about it. It doesn't mean you drop all of your friends. But what it means is that in your heart, you know what it is that is true and you adhere to. And there might be times that you need to speak up. I just don't set it as my goal in life to set everybody straight and to let them know what I believe. If I did that, I wouldn't have any friends. But there are times when when truth has to be spoken. And it doesn't mean we understand it all. It doesn't mean everything is clear, because it's not. There are things I read in this book, I'm like, holy mackerel, I have no clue what that means. And I don't know how this applies. And that's okay. It's okay. And it doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation with people to, to, you know, to dive in and try to understand it. That's, that's all certainly a part of the, of the deal. But my point is, is that not all truth is up for grabs. There are some things that are really clear. And our citizenship and allegiance is not primarily in the land that we live in but it is in a kingdom that is not of this world. 
And frankly, it's what separates real disciples from posers. Am I living under the allegiance of the king or am I calling the shots? That's really not too hard to figure out. The modern mindset decries people who make truth claims, especially in the area of religion or morals. It's convenient for us when we don't like what is said here to say, well, I don't believe in that truth. But then when I have something that's important to me, I'm going to start standing up and claiming this truth. And here's the deal. You just can't escape that we live in a world where objective truth and objective morals exist. You can decry it all you want, but you're going to bump up against it. And nobody, nobody can live like no truth exists or like no morals exist at all. Paul wrote that we are to command and teach these things. Just see if this is a, you know, kind of a mamby-pamby, you know, not sure what I believe kind of statement or if this takes some courage standing straight. Not about everything. And I, I, don't, I don't think that every, you know, eschatology, tongues, all the things that Christians get all weirded out about, it's like, just quit, okay? There are, there are things that, that there are essentials when it comes to the gospel, right? Who Jesus is, but, but here's what it says. Command and teach these things. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Practice these things Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And I think by save, he's not talking about salvation, but save yourself from the consequences of what would happen to you or your church if you didn't do this. See, a spiritually vital church will adhere to teaching that is consistent with Scripture. Next, they devoted themselves to sharing their lives. Speaks of they devoted themselves to fellowship. It's that famous Greek word koinonia. It's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as sharing, participation, contribution. And one other time, it's actually translated partnership. The word simply means far more than having potlucks, but thankfully it does include food, so we're glad for that. But it implies a sharing all of life, including spiritual activities, you know, prayer and and, and worship together, but also physical things. It's used in the context of food, but also money, other resources that we share. So, I think it has the idea that we are relishing in and we enhance our relationship with God and others when we fellowship. We might say it this way, that Christ liberates us from ourselves so that we can use whatever we have, whatever we own to meet needs and strengthen our brothers and sisters. Us becomes the ruling value over me. See, when we fellowship, there is no defensive clutching of 
of my own life. I can be vulnerable about my issues, my problems. That's a part of fellowship. And there's no defensive clutching about my physical possessions either. There is a generous participation. And I would suggest that a neglected fellowship is a sign of a weakened first love and bungling of the great grace that we've received through Christ. Starting in 2010, there was a conference called the Boring Conference in England since 2010. Speakers addressed hot topics like sneezing, toast, the sounds made by vending machines, and inkjet printers of 1999. And guess what? The conference is a sellout hit. What? (laughs) Maybe it shows people are that needy for community. How much more do we fellowship together around the communion that we have in Jesus Christ? Does that mean that we all have similar interests? No. You, you know, we talk about people in their life groups, and I love our life group. I love the people in our group. We so enjoy it, Janet and I do. Do we all have similar interests? No. Do we all agree on politics? No. Are we all the same age? No. Do we all like the same sports teams? No. We share a common gospel, a a common relationship with Christ that knits our souls together. We grow deeper, we love better, we share more as our relationship, our fellowship grows. To ignore fellowship is to starve ourselves spiritually. You become a spiritual anorexic. See, past hurts are not healed in isolation but in community. Misunderstandings are not resolved by distance, but only in communion with others. But if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Luke expands on this fellowship in verses 44 through 45, and he addresses the the generosity of the community toward one another when he says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, remember when we started in the book of Acts, I said, my goal, and I, I, I really am trying as hard as I can not to be swayed by preconceived notions, some theological grid I want to let the book speak for itself. So that means I'm not trying to make it, you know, pro-Pentecostal, not Pentecostal. I don't care about the labels. I just want the book to speak for itself, and wherever it lands, that's where we're going to land, all right? And here's a spot in the passage where I think the temptation is to denude the meaning. To see this as some extraordinary practice 
That was unique for that time. However, I think there are a couple principles that we can gather from this passage, verses 44 and through 45. Number one is this. First of all, 44 says they were together, right? Fellowship means meeting together regularly. I mean, marriages that play freeze out consistently because of past hurts usually don't last. And neither does fellowship in a church when we nurse wounds in isolation. The second thing is they willingly sacrifice to meet needs. That's the principle we see here in verses 44 and 45. It says they had all things in common. They sold possessions and met needs. Now, this is not some form of communism, forcing people to give and then disseminating the, the, uh, the, the resources equally amongst all the citizens. This is not some statement against personal property. Rather, what we have is when a need arose, the believers freely and without any kind of abusive kind of pressure, they met the needs. In fact, Paul speaks of another church responding this way in 2 Corinthians 8.3 when he says this, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. In other words, there is a, a form of giving out of excess where, you know, we give what we can afford, you know, we have extra, we're going to give that. But then there is a giving that is sacrificial, that, that we have to give something up to meet a need. I mean, it could be radical. I may have to give up an extra car to meet that need. I may give up a boat. I may give up a membership to somewhere. I may sell some clothes. Whatever it is, I am willing to do what God is calling me to do to meet the need. Now, this is a spirit-generated generosity. We obviously can't meet every need, but there are some things that we can do. But frankly, I find this a very threatening passage. We'd rather not talk about this. But I would again remind you, when Luke writes this, this is not some bribe. He's not forcing the issue. He's describing a voluntary sacrifice for the sake of other brothers and sisters. And let's face it, this is not something that we are used to. And frankly, this church rarely calls you to sacrifice. Now, that's the truth of it. You may say, well, the two times I've come the last year, all you've talked about is money. Well, you know what? That's probably the only two times I've talked about money all year because we rarely do it. But there is a voluntary sacrifice that is to be a part of the community of believers for the sake of other brothers and sisters. And it's why in this season, we are asking that we consider our brothers and sisters in Guatemala. They have minimal resources. 20% of the culture lives on $1 a day. 68% of the indigenous children suffer from chronic malnutrition. Now, our church has adopted the Bethlehem Care Point. Several hundred children in this spot. They, some of them walk as I said, two or three hours to get to this place. They, they offer an education. They offer food, some clothing when they have it. And what we're seeking is to help them with two specific needs, is to help them to 
really upgrade their educational supplies and to help them with a vehicle that can transport the children or the staff to a healthcare facility or other needs as they see fit. And for both of those, 11 grand. I mean, that's a pretty good deal, 11 grand. We can't meet all the needs. We don't have all the resources in the world, but we, we just have what we're responsible for, right? And, and listen, I'll tell you what we've done as a church. There's hardly a week that goes by we don't have somebody coming to us asking for money for either a local ministry or a ministry outside or a missionary. But what we've done is that we've decided there are going to be four different ministries that we're going to focus on in 2017, which means we're going to say no to an awful lot of people. And, and, you know, there's kind of a, a giving or compassion fatigue we can have if we just keep bringing people before you say, hey, give to this, give to that. But we're trying to target this so that we can be far more strategic. And we'll talk more about this in the, in the future. So we have, we have kept other people aside who have come to us and said, hey, can you help us with this? I said, no, sorry. We've already got our Guatemala initiative and we've already started saying no to a lot of different people. Now, is that because, you know, we're selfish? No, it's because we want to be generous. We can't meet every need. So we pray together. We ask God, what do you want us to focus on? This is it, all right? No person can do it all, but we as a church, as prompted by the Holy Spirit, can share our resources. And we can see several hundred children go from surviving to thriving, that excites me. I got a note from somebody who visited our church a couple weeks ago, heard me talk about uh, Guatemala. They don't go here. They don't live in this city. Sent to me $1,000 to go to Guatemala. Don't even go here. So I've asked them to come every Sunday until the Advent conspiracy is over. That's a demonstration of just somebody being moved by the Holy Spirit and responding. And that's all we're asking. What is it the Holy Spirit is asking you to do? Are we willing to sacrifice? And what we've said is, we're going to sacrifice with Christmas giving. We are going to cut back on the amount of money, and we've said this as a family, that we spend on Christmas. Now, that's a sacrifice. Making a sacrifice for the sake of others. Listen, fellowship is the sharing of our lives together. We share our spiritual lives by being vulnerable, sharing details of our lives to encourage others, not that we're the center of attention, but so that we can encourage others to give them hope, and we share even physical possessions. We share our physical lives by freely sharing our material needs to meet needs as God sees fit. I think Luke included this passage and wrote this because he too was so moved by the the compassion, the generosity of the people. Were they like that 24-7? Probably not. But I think they did have a generosity that marked them as a people. And that's what we're asking for God to do that we would stand in awe of God and share our lives with one another in every way possible. Just imagine 
what God will do when all of our life groups and the congregation gets that kind of vision. See, that is the, that is the best evangelism program you could ever have. It's when you love one another. Well, that's what Jesus prayed for in John 17. When, when people see how you love one another, they're going to say, what in the world is happening there? And that's what will happen.